I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzu Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun along the way. You can send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com, and, of course, I will answer as many as I can. So fresh back from the Windy City, I actually have only been in Chicago a few times in my life, uh, but this time we actually flew. We've talked at my wedding last week. Uh, beginning of the week, we had to come back. Then for Shabbos, we went to Chicago. I said, and next week, I'm going again to the East Coast. I can only drive so many times. So I figured, let's fly. So it was great. First of all, you take off from Detroit around 11 o'clock. You land in Chicago. It's still around 11 o'clock. It's fantastic. Kids picked us up. We went to this one's house, to that one's house. You know, they welcome to the Windy City. Um, I don't know if you know this. Um, it's not called the Windy City because it's very windy. Something to do with people in New York didn't like people in Chicago. I didn't get the exact story, but not because it's windy. But it is a very big airport, which, of course, is going under construction like everybody else until you figure out where you're going, where you're supposed to get picked up, who's supposed to pick you up. There's a hotel across the street. We just hung out there. But maybe we'll talk about it later. Because now I'm home, and that's exactly what Jacob in this week's Torah portion was trying to do. He was trying to get home. Last week's Torah portion, Jacob escapes, runs away, takes his family, leaves Haran, leaves his father-in-law and family behind. They chase after him. They uh, certainly, according to the verses, wanted to kill him. God comes to love on, says, don't touch Jacob. That's all last week's Torah portion. So now Jacob is sort of around the border in Israel, not in Israel. It seems like he actually is in the land of Israel at this point already. And uh, he does something interesting. You know, there's a phrase. The phrase is that we let sleeping dogs lie. I was like explaining that phrase to my third grade class because it's pretty easy and they get the picture really fast, right? If you're sneaking into somebody's backyard and there's a big dog there, you don't like throw rocks at it to wake it up to say, here I am. You just keep going. Here, Yaakov, Jacob, at the beginning of the Torah portion, sends messengers to Esav, hey, bro, I am home. Now, last time they were together, 20 or so years ago, Esav wanted to kill Yaakov, right? Yaakov has to run away so he doesn't get killed. What makes you think anything has changed? Which is really the whole message at the beginning of the Torah portion. Yaakov is comfortable, it seems, we'll have to decide, to some extent he's comfortable informing his brother, I'm back. And he's going to prepare for him. And so the first verse in the, in the Torah portion is a very unusual verse. It says, uh, it says, He sent, he sent angels or he sent messengers. I lived with Lavan. 
and I delayed, sorry it took me so long, and I have flocks and cows and sheep and camels and servants, and that's part of the message, I have a present for my dear brother. But some explain, very simple, the word, the Hebrew word for lived is garti. It's not the normal word you would use, but that's the word Jacob uses. Because it happens to be, if you flip around the letters, or if you add up the letters, the numerical value of Garity is 613. So Jacob is hinting to his brother Esav, if you believe in our father's blessings, well, the blessing was you only have control over me if I don't keep the Torah. But if I do keep the Torah and you believe in the blessings, then you can't touch me. So I'm telling you, I kept the Torah, you can't touch me. On the other extreme, you shouldn't worry about the blessings anyways. Because I was blessed where I'm going to have fields and, and grain and vineyards and oil. I got animals. I, I got to be moving all over the place with my flocks. That wasn't the blessing. I don't got land. I don't got importance. I'm not, a, I'm not an officer or a leader. I just got me and my little family. So again, you're worried about the blessings. I didn't get anything. Nothing really to worry about. So that's how the Torah portion opens up, that Jacob is informing his brother Esau that I'm back, and in either case, you shouldn't bother me, either because if you believe in the blessings, you're not going to win, and if you, or that you shouldn't worry about the blessings because I didn't get anything. So what happens? He prepares for three things. This is a very fascinating Torah portion. Um, Esau becomes Rome. In other words, if we, if we fast forward a thousand years, the Rome that destroyed the second temple is Esau. So the rabbis of the Talmud were always dealing, because Rome took over. First of all, the last 200 years of the temple, the rabbis uh, um, were, were dealing with Rome, because Rome had basically conquered the country. They let the temple stick around. But it's not like the Jewish people had a standing army. Yes, there was a small period in history, which really we should talk about, because I won't be here next week. I have another wedding. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but we talk about the story of Hanukkah. The story of Hanukkah, of Hanukkah with, the, with the menorah and the oil for eight days, that really takes place smack dab in the middle of the second temple. The Greeks were in charge the first half, and then the the Hashmanoyim, the Maccabee family, their uh, ragtag army gets rid of the Greeks, but they themselves are uncomfortable trying to be the sole rulers over the land. They ask Rome for help. So for maybe 26 years, they're in charge, but afterwards Rome takes over. So the second half of the temple, anyways, Rome was in charge. Then they destroy the temple, and then the rabbis are forever going back and forth with Rome and dealing with Rome. So whenever they would deal with Rome, which is Esau, they would deal with this week's Torah portion. Because Jacob prepares himself in three ways to deal with his brother. He's going to send him presents. Some people call that a bribe. That's one thing he's going to do. He's going to pray to God to help him. That's number two. And number three, it says he's going to prepare for war. But we shouldn't get that confused. 
Preparing for war doesn't mean that they're practicing bow and arrow and practicing swordsmanship. That's not what it means. It actually says they're going to have Jacob breaks up his family into two camps. He says if Esau attacks one, the other one could escape. So preparing for war doesn't mean to actually fight. We in exile, our job is not to fight. Our job is to survive. So survival means if they start with, up with you over here, find somewhere else to go. The rabbis, even before World War II, when they knew things were going to be bad, um, one of the things they did was they said, you know, America is that second camp. And was, if we can't escape over here, at least some of the Jewish people have escaped to the, across the Atlantic where they felt it would be safe, and pretty much that's what happened, right? In other words, very small remnants survived Europe, but America did survive. And the Jewish people, for the most part, built up from there. Yes, you had also the, the Arab countries. A lot of those Jews made their way to Israel. And some Jews did survive the Holocaust. But overall, it was America, which is where we escaped to. So that just happens to be that same concept of how we prepared. So now, a few, just an interesting number. I don't even know if I have a good answer to the following question. But we like to think about interesting things. And that is actually the number 400. The number 400 comes up in, I believe, three places. We'll have to look at my notes now to see where the three are. Number one, Asav is coming. Jacob is going to send all these presents, all this livestock. And it says, Rashi mentions, and he sent him gold and jewels and stuff, a big present. And Asav is coming with 400... Soldiers, 400 generals, but the number 400 is used. Okay, that's one place where we come up with the number 400. A second place where we come up with the number 400 happens to be that it was 400 coins, big silver coins, that Abraham used to purchase the burial place, the Maris Machpela, uh, the cave of Machpela. He paid 400 silver coins so that. Abraham and Sarah could be buried there, and Isaac and Rebekah could be buried there, and Jacob and Leah could be buried there. So again, they seem to have nothing in common at all. And then one more place that the number 400 comes up, and that happens to be that when God tells Abraham how long the Jewish people will be in a land that's not theirs and slaves for a chunk of that time, again, the number 400 comes up. The temples were 410 and 420, so that doesn't count as a, I don't think, that that counts as number 400. So it's just interesting. So we have Asa with 400 men, the price of Mars Samach Pele is 400, and the amount of years that God told Abraham will be slaves in a la- or will, will be strangers in a land that's not ours, that that's going to take place for 400 years. Um, I'm sure there is a thread that goes through these three numbers, and I left myself question marks. And I had a whole week to think about it, uh, but I did not come up with a satisfactory answer, which is something that I teach people all the time. Sometimes we can ask a very, very good question, and the good question helps us think. Do we have all the answers? No, we don't have all the answers. And there's nothing wrong with not having all the answers. People like to question God, and they have questions. And they, if you can't answer this question, then I don't want to believe in God. That's really ridiculous. I actually like the fact 
that there's questions I can ask about God and I don't have the answer. Because if I was smart enough to have all the answers and I understood God completely, I don't need a God like that. I can't have a God that I'm just as smart as him. That's ridiculous. Right? What's that worth? So there's questions we have, and it's interesting to think about that if somebody has an answer, certainly he should send me an email to my mailbag at letstalktorichimo.com. But I actually do not have a good answer why this 400 keeps cropping up in these few Torah portions. I don't think we find the number come up um, elsewhere in the Torah, I'm, like my brain is thinking, but I don't see that number 400. There is, I'm sorry, there is one other place that's 400, but that is really connected. That's um, when King David um, fights a certain army. It says 400 camel riders escaped. But those four ca- 400 camel riders, that is connected to Esav, that these 400 we're going to find out disappear. So as a, as, a, as a reward, I guess their descendants, 400 of them, were able to escape, but that's a real connection. So again, I don't have any other numbers on this one or, or a reason. But let's 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 talk about these soldiers. So Asav is showing up with four hundred soldiers. Obviously, Asav's original intent was to go to war, and he has a massive army here. Now, what does Jacob have? There's Jacob. There is the eleven. Because the the Benjamin has not been born yet, so he has eleven children, and they might be mighty warriors. But the oldest one is twelve, right? So even if your couple oldest kids perhaps would know what to do if they picked up a sword, I mean Joseph is probably all of six at this point, somewhere in the not five, but six, six and a half. He has a family with a bunch of little kids, has all his livestock, he has a couple wives. You're coming with 400 minimum soldiers. Other commentaries say they were generals. You're coming with a humongous army to start up with Jacob. Either Jacob is a monster, and uh, with less than 400 soldiers, you got no shot. Even though Asaph should be, you would think, as a twin brother, should be somewhat equal to him. You, you could have that imagination, at least. But 400 soldiers, he's coming to do battle. He's coming to wipe him out. What's fascinating is as Asav's group gets closer and they start to have a dialogue, um, the soldiers disappear. They leave. Like, why? You could say they disappeared because they saw there wasn't going to be a war. They were in it for the blood. Once they see that Asav is... I don't want to call him a pacifist. But once they see that Asav's not really fighting, then they have no use for the whole story. They were there to kill. I'm not killing. I'm out of here. However, I saw an interesting, a different answer. That they, these soldiers, when they saw the spirituality, the level of holiness that they were dealing with, they couldn't handle it. They saw this very holy person, and the reaction to seeing a very holy person is to run. And that's something that I've been thinking about. In other words, uh, what do you do when you run into spirituality? As a story, many, many years ago, I studied with somebody. He had a, uh, a very large fruit store. I mean, I'm going to a fruit store. You just imagine. It was a grocery store, but mainly it was known for its fruits and vegetables. The place was huge. It was a huge place, and we were good friends. Um, we're still good friends, and he would always pack me up. 
Like, he couldn't let me leave his office without not just a bag of apples. It had to be a case of apples. It had to be a case of oranges. It had to be like, uh, you couldn't even carry this stuff. He had to have people help me into my car, and then I had to call all my neighbors to give it away. How many oranges can one person eat? Even my family loves fruit, but there's a, a limit. But we, we have a tremendous, beautiful relationship, not a religious fellow, to say the least. Um, so he was actually engaged to somebody who was not Jewish. And he wanted to introduce her to me. Then they got married, had kids, got divorced. It sounds like a pretty um, standard American story. But anyways, she refused to come into the office to see me. Why? So a little bit lack of knowledge. Um, I believe she was Catholic, so she thought that she was going to walk through the door and I would be hiding behind the door and I would sprinkle magic water on her and that would make her Jewish. I don't know why she thought that, because there's no such thing. We don't do that, right? You might become Jewish. We have rules and regulations. You have to accept. Many, many uh, shows ago, can't remember when, probably two years ago, we had somebody who converted on the show. We talked about the process. It's a two-year process minimum because we want to make sure people know what they're getting into and they have to practice. But that's what she thought. But I was reminded of that story when I'm thinking of the soldiers, and the reason I'm reminded of the story is she was afraid of spirituality. You don't have to like the spirituality. No one's asking you to become more spiritual. No one's asking you to become more righteous. But why do you have to run away from it? You at least see what it is, right? I mean, I think that happens everywhere in America now. They're like so allergic to anything that smells like it's religious. No one's telling you to become religious. No one's demanding anything from you. But at least check it out, right? What are you afraid of? Don't be afraid to question. Don't be afraid to look at it. And don't be afraid to say, it's not for me. Don't worry. Trust me. We know it's not for you. If, if you don't want to live that lifestyle, you're not fooling us. We don't feel bad. We're not worried about it. But don't be afraid. Why should you be afraid to taste, to check something out? So it's not for you. It's not for you. That's fine. But don't run away from it, which is really fascinating. Because Aesop's 400 soldiers, they saw spirituality. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They all ran away. Okay. Now, you know, for whatever reason, when I was preparing for, for, for this show, I, I'm really working very, very backwards. And I was, I've jumped so far ahead in the Torah portion, now I want to back up, which is not always helpful for people trying to follow the story. But my goal this week wasn't to follow the storyline. My goal was to bring out three points, and each one is earlier in the Torah portion. Again, I don't know that's why it worked out, this is how my brain was working. And my brain is, I'm not sure how my brain is working. So interesting. Um, I like to study, study a lot of Talmud. So a week and a half ago, the day of my son's wedding, so, you know, a guy's getting married, you're hanging around, right? They don't want you at the wedding hall yet. They're not ready for pictures. You took your shower. He shaves. Um, I get a trim. He, he had nothing to do. I said, yes. Open up your Gemara, open up your Talmud, and study. And he tried. And he said, my brain's not working. I said, okay, if it's not working, I said, I could study with you. He said, no, no, my brain's not working. I understand. He was getting married. 
Brain's not working. That's a beautiful thing. And I think I've been so busy with weddings, coming, going, preparation. I think my brain also wasn't working because I, I, it never occurred to me to rearrange the order. So let's get into what I want to talk about next. We have a few minutes left. So Jacob, as I told you, he sends these presents. And he gets his family across a river. The river happens to be called the River Yabok. Whichever river that is near the land of Israel. I have no idea. Maybe nowadays it's like a wadi. I don't know. But in any case... He gets the family across, and he goes back. He left behind some small jars. Some say that has to do with Hanukkah. Uh, the oil was in those jars. Perhaps that oil has a connection to the temple, was used in the temple. He was going to use it uh, when he got to the temple. Maybe it's the same oil. as all kinds of different thoughts about what he was going back for. But he goes back for these small jars, and he is all alone. He's alone. Now, it's interesting. He's going to be alone, and that's where he fights with an angel. This famous angel that comes to fight with Jacob fights with Jacob when Jacob is all alone. That's one of the things that makes Jacob special, different than the other forefathers. We don't find Abraham ever really alone. We don't really find Isaac ever alone. But Jacob battles this spiritual, this angel, and uh, just to make sure we get the story. So it says, Jacob and the angel fought all night. Exactly how do you fight with an angel? And an angel is a spiritual being. This is not comic books. This is not the, the we, who, you can fight gods. There's no such thing, right? You, uh, Jacob is a person. An angel is an angel. An angel is completely spiritual. A person is physical. Yes, he has spirituality. The fight obviously had to be a spiritual battle. The angel wants to get Jacob to sin. Jacob will be doing battle to make sure that he will not sin. That's the battle. They battle all night. Jacob wins. The angel realizes he cannot win over Jacob, and he is happy because he has accomplished his job. His job is to make us better. He made Jacob as high as he could be, so the angel is happy. So Jacob has fought a battle alone. And that is why the Jewish people come completely from Jacob. And I was Abraham has more kids, has Ishmael. Isaac has Esau. Jacob has the 12 tribes. Because we need a Jacob. We need to come from a place where even when we're alone, we can still remain on a spiritual high level. Generally, we all need people. We love to go to synagogue. We love to talk. We love to schmooze. We, we like to go to study halls. We like to go to parties. I'm making a wedding. A lot of people are going to be there. We eat. We dance. We sing. We talk. We do stuff. It's a wedding. We, like, we don't like to be alone. We like to serve God in a group. And it's interesting. I think... Hopefully, as Corona is officially winding down, even though in Michigan it seems it's picked up again. But I think Corona taught us a fascinating lesson, right? In other words, the, the synagogues were all closed down, right? The, the communities, anything religious, anything Jewish was shut down. So I had to learn where is my level of commitment? Where is my level of Jewishness when I'm at it alone? Right? And that's what we needed Jacob for. We needed to come from a Jacob who taught us that he could be alone 
and still we have the ability to be spiritual, we have the ability to be strong, we have the ability to be Jewish. That's what we learn from Jacob. That's what we take from Jacob, that, that even when we're alone, that doesn't stop us from being good, being special. That's anyways a lesson which we're not going to have time for. That we, that, so you're alone, right? What does being alone have anything to do with our level of Jewishness? And the music is playing. And I hope, as always, you like it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all of my wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team behind the table. I may not be able to say that too many more times because I don't know in the new studio if there's a table. Right? David and Andy, until next time, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Toro on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.